Please join me in, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming this evening's guest moderator, marketing director of Mulholland Books, Miriam Parker, and tonight's guest author, Pete Hamill. So I'm going to read just a little bit of this new novel. The novel itself is structured around a newspaper, but it's not entirely about a newspaper, particularly the one that I've invented, which is on its last day as a newspaper about to become a website. But it's also about the, the, the actual people who end up in tabloids in the 24-hour period, which is the period of the book. Um, you can pick up a newspaper and see 13 or 14 different stories about 13 or 14 different people. Some appear for three paragraphs and some are page one. Um, but they give us a sense of the city, a city like this, as varied and dense and complicated as it is, you can get it from the content of the paper. So I tried to make uh, the content of this novel reflect the way newspapers are produced. So I'll read a short piece about one of the characters, uh, and then later we can talk, just fire away and ask questions, and uh, I'll try to answer them. The character I'm going to read about is a woman um, named Beverly Starr, who named herself after Brenda Starr, who was a figure in a comic book in the Daily News for many years. Uh, she's a cartoonist who lives in Brooklyn, in Gowanus, down by the Gowanus Canal, um, a place where in my Brooklyn youth, Missing gamblers were loosely, usually found floating face down. It, it still has a bit of that quality when you walk past it. Um, and my character is working on a comic strip. Uh, as we open the, the, into the actual chapter. She's just taken a break from something else she's working on, has, is doing some exercises to stay awake. It's 2.19 in the morning. She stretches, moves her shoulders like rippling gears, then glances at the Mac, her true workshop. The painting she's just finished, which is a painting used for a poster, is the first work she's done away from the Mac in two years but she can't sleep now. She has more work to do. She rolls the chair and sits down facing the screen. There's a page on the screen. Half the panels in black and white, half in color, alternating real world, virtual world. Page five of Like Mama. For Vanity Fair, splash page and four strip pages. All about a mild-mannered English teacher named Lois Trueheart, early 40s, a spinster like a creator. She's been driven half mad by the way all the, young, all the girl students use like in almost every uttered sentence, sometimes twice or three times, and how they add question marks after statements of fact, as if all fact were conditional. On Beverly's splash page, there's an aerial shot of New York City showing the skyscrapers, Central Park, the East River, parts of Brooklyn and Queens, 
Voice balloons are rising over the city, some large, others tiny, hundreds of them, many millions of others just suggested, all saying like, 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 in class, in the corridors, in stores and churches and bars, on the streets, in the subway, maybe even in their sleep. He calls and I'm like, scared? I finish and I'm like, happy? He's handsome, but he's like 30. I look at it and it's like, awesome. One four-letter word blurring the city's soundtrack, part of the pasty verbal mush. And on the splash page, it's crowding the sky among the many towers. Is that girl scared or is she like scared? Is this one happy or is she like happy? The guy is 30 or like 30 and his schlong is like awesome? Where the Twin Towers once stood, an immense new steel and granite edifice, ominous, primordial, carries the name of the story, the charge of the like brigade. In a small panel at the bottom, Lois Trueheart holds her head in her hands, racked with despair, alone at her desk in an empty classroom. On a blackboard behind her are the words, precise, clear, exact. Those words that mean like nothing to millions of young women. She clicks to the following page. A gigantic gray finger enters through the window, a finger with the cross-hatched texture of stone and touches her clenched hands. Then Lois is swept up and out of the window, into the sky, whizzed to the far reaches of the galaxy, all the way to the fortress of exactitude, where she is placed before the ancient deity, Grammaticus. He gives the, her the sacred task to cleanse the English-speaking world of like by any means necessary she will become like Mama. Beverly Star laughs, a gust of rain sprays the room's two windows, hard and tiny pieces of the sky, drowning and silencing the earth, one pellet for each like millions, billions, cluster bombs from God or Grammaticus. She lays down the stylus she uses for details, moves the chair back with her flat butt, hits save, and rises. In Like Mama, Beverly uses herself as the model for Lois, an exclamation point in a Catwoman suit, improved by art into a 34C cup. The character has a secret lab in Red Hook, where she invents her own tools for the crusade, a stylus-sized secret weapon with a button she can press when it's slyly aimed at one of the like brigade. The girl says like, and her thorax freezes. Her eyes widen. She can't finish a sentence. Like Mama presses the button again, and the young woman can speak, which she does nervously, until she says like again, and click, frozen silence. Panic? She resembles a dog who has encountered an electric fence. Maybe the girl even gets what happened, connects like to paralysis, but like mama doesn't stick around for Pavlovian results, as puny as this one might be. 
She is returning to the beginning of this, far from Brooklyn, in distant California. Google has taught her that Valley Girls were the Muslim Brotherhood of this linguistic perversion. Now they are Beverly's age, or the same age as Lois Trueheart, and still talking that way, making it seem normal in certain households and classrooms. And Beverly realizes that she will need to invent a weapon of mass obstruction. And then, and then we dissolve to the very end of the chapter. It's, it's a little on the long side for this book. Gotta go to work, she thinks. Gotta finish the story. Can't sleep now. Gotta be awake until nine when the guy comes for the pickup. Sleep now. I'll be like granite when he shows up. Gotta work until eight. Breakfast. Watch some morning Joe. Make the handover, then sleep until four. The thing tonight is cocktails with snacks, like eating Crayolas. One thing I learned in this life, if you're going to a benefit, better eat before you go. Like going to mama's house uh, for dinner before she did the world a favor and died. That's the end of the chapter, but... Um, so there are characters like her and there are newspaper men, obviously, in a novel that has a structure, a newspaper structure. Um, there's an amateur jihadist. There's a double homicide uh, at the beginning of the book that drives much of the action in what follows. Uh, the two women that are killed in the homicide, one of them um, is the longtime 20-year girlfriend of the editor of a newspaper, of the newspaper in this book, who is then faced with the dilemma of how, what comes first, mourning or getting the paper out, even if it's someone you love. And the other woman is married to a police lieutenant who's on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and he's facing a similar dilemma. Does he go off and drown in anguish, or does he go to try to find whoever did this? So there's a thriller structure, uh, but it's basically a novel about loneliness uh, and how it's handled, which is one of the great dilemmas in a city this crowded. There are many people who embrace solitude and know it can be rich and, and, uh, and very, very human. And there's loneliness, which can drive some people mad. Uh, as the book moves along, some of those aspects deepen and push the narrative forward. Um, and it's a book, a novel, not a thesis. So it doesn't resolve or give you a how-to guide to how to cure loneliness, but it certainly recognizes it as one of the, the great presences in life in New York City. It's true. Um, it, 
there is a togetherness, though, of all the characters. Like, I feel like you, when you're reading the book, there are so many different voices that are going on. And I know we've talked about, you said, talked about this a little bit, about structuring the novel as a tabloid and using the, the uh, techniques of tabloid journalism in order to tell this story. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the differences between writing, you know, writing a, you know, journalism for a newspaper like the Daily News or the Post, like you did for many years, and writing a novel like this one that has elements of journalism but is in very much a novel. Well, it's a very simple uh, difference, and it's been it's as true now as it was in the 18th and 19th centuries. A novel is a work of the imagination. Um, you you can make it uh, more. Uh, you can make this fiction, this invented story, more believable by using the tools of reporting. You can go out, better not, you know, have a, a car chase going uptown on 2nd Avenue. No, every, people will say, wow, what does this guy know? <laughs> and throw it away. Um, uh, but you can do in, a, in fiction, and it's why so many... Uh, Reporters have ended up writing fiction. You know, people, classics, Hemingway or Stephen Crane or uh, right up to Carl Hyacin and Pete Dexter and people like that who are really wonderful novelists uh, but are f wanted to free themselves from the constriction of journalism, which is you're not allowed to invent. You can't go into the interior lives of people in journalism. You can't do that. Um, even when they tell you something, you have to listen skeptically because people lie. <laughs> They've been doing it for millennia. Uh, so you can't even trust that. Uh, whereas I think in fiction sometimes, even by making some things up, you can sometimes get closer to the actual truth of things than you can with, with journalism. Yeah, I think, I, I, I can't remember if it was Joyce Carol Oates who said that her nonfiction is 70% true and her fiction is 90% true or <laughs> something like that. No, that sounds right, you know, depending on the writer. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, well, speaking of truth, one of my most favorite details, I haven't gotten to ask you about this yet, one of my favorite details in the novel is the description of the old typewriters that Briscoe keeps in the newsroom and, I, you know, sort of the typewriters over the ages. And they're, and they're, a, a, they're a, a thing that he really loves and, I, and he thinks about when it, when he's when they're talking about ending the paper, those 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 typewriters just keep coming up. And I wondered um, if that if, if there was if you have a collection of typewriters, and also if if this is a real detail from a, a newsroom you've worked in. I have four typewriters in storage in Mexico, because Mexico was a, one of the great places to find ancient typewriters because they came late late to the to the internet revolution. So. Uh, some people went from um, using old stand-up typewriters uh, straight to the computer with nothing in between, no electric typewriters, nothing. Um, so I have four of them, and if I ever have a, uh, an apartment again that has room for those typewriters, they're coming in, we'll have a, an honored place in the room, because they're, they're wonderful. I love the sound of them. Uh, there's problems now. It's hard to get a typewriter ribbon anywhere. There was an, some old guy on 28th Street or something who had the last typewriter ribbons. I should have bought 10. Right. Um, 
I, I, I know a writer who's, who says that he writes one draft always on a typewriter, though, because um, you, you always cut words when you have to type, when you have to hit the key each time and hear the, you know, the letter go onto the page. You're like, I don't need that word. I don't need that but word. the trouble is if the E doesn't work, then you're in trouble. <laughs> That's you true. Know. But they have a wonderful sound. And in newspapers, as deadline approached, the clack, the the clacking of typewriters as you reach the deadline. Right. It would go, boom, it was over. Too late. It didn't matter what you wrote after that. It could be the King James Version of the Bible. No, no room. Can't get it in. But I loved typewriters, and I miss them still. Yeah. Along with an AP ticker, which is playing all the right. time. The, the sounds of the newsroom have definitely changed yeah, since... Yeah, uh, the soundtrack. Right, <laughs> indeed. Um, well, I think one of the... There's a... Um, another theme in the novel is this sort of... You know, it's the last night of that this paper is going to be printed. It's sort of turning into a, it's turning into a website. We're in a, a place that's full of digital devices. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think um, the future of j journalism, printed journalism, digital journalism, and also, you know, digital reading as well. Well, I, I'm optimistic about the future of journalism, uh, but not necessarily of newspapers. Mm. In other words, we're in a wonderful period right now, full of promise, trembling promise, as uh, online journalism is professionalizing. Right. I support absolutely the decision of the Times and Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, to charge for content. Yeah. This is not a hobby. They have to pay reporters and have editors. Um, but at the same time, I've been teaching for the last five years in a, in, at NYU in the journalism school, and I'm very impressed with the kids there, with the students. They're full of passion. They want to do this imperfect craft, practice it. Um, they want to make something of their lives where they can have useful work. They're not talking about becoming the richest guy south of 67th Street or something. They're not, that's not what they're after. They're after something that has use, that can comfort people, that can put the right guys in jail and get the wrong guys out, that can do something useful for us, and that's what we need in a country like this. Um, but I think we're right in the transition now in which optimism is permissible because I think that's the direction it's going to go. And it'll, for the next 10 or 20 years, I think they'll, still, they'll have both. They'll, they'll have paper editions and, and digital editions of some newspapers. But uh, I think looking at the Daily Beast and some of the others, that it's going in the, what I hope is the right direction. Good. And I think your character Bobby Fonseca, um, he, right? That's yeah. The uh, the young journalist. He sort of has this. There is a sort of hope and excitement yeah. that he has that makes you. That I wonder if is he, yeah. he did you sort of draw from the enthusiasm of your students to. Uh, he's him? based on about yeah. five different students. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that Bobby Fonseca yeah. and it, and the, these are not kids who want to play Humphrey Bogart in Deadline U USA. They want to do it in this world that we're living in now um, and go out and try to do it. It's not a romantic notion of the past. It's a possibly romantic notion of the future. 
but it's one that fills me with a lot of optimism and hope. Um, one other thing that I love about your novels, and this is true of Tabloid City, but also of Forever and Snow in August, is that they feel like sort of love letters to New York in so many ways. Like New York is another character in your novels, and I wonder, um, I, I, I just wonder uh, if you ever, if you ever thought about, if you, could you set a novel outside of New York? Could you? Uh, I, I probably could, but you know, so could Faulkner. You know, who decided Mississippi was plenty. Um, and I'm, I don't mean to compare myself with the talent or genius of a Faulkner, but some people, Dickens and others, focused fairly well. And now I've lived in other countries. I lived yeah. in Spain and in Mexico and, and Italy and other places. Uh, but they, what they helped me to, to do was to understand New York better. Mm. And because New York is so huge and so various, Anybody who says, I know New York is an idiot. Right. Uh, it's as bad as those guys who say, the American people want. And then everything after that in the sentence is, you know, hope, uh, not fact. So uh, there's parts of New York I could probably never understand. Mm -hmm. um, and of other cities, I could probably understand Mexico City and and Dublin and a few in Belfast and a few other places. Um, and I hope I have some plans for a book set in Sicily that I, I want to write. Uh, but that's because Sicily reminds me of Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, this guy's sitting around going, you know, without saying a word. <laughs> the chin goes up, you know, which means essentially, who are you? <laughs> Although I don't look like someone in the witness protection program, so I guess I'll be all right. You're allowed. You're allowed. Right. In, you're allowed in the front door. Um, one of the things I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, your your the way you were raised. I know your mother was a, uh, was the one who really encouraged you to read, and you know um, that you had to read a book before you could go see a movie and things like that. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you became the writer that you are. And well, I think in the sense that all writers start as readers. Obviously, if you don't read much, even the ambition to want to write something is not going to be there. And I don't remember learning how to read, which, which means that I had the great privilege as the oldest of seven kids to have my mother teach me. She had, a, she had to have explained these little symbols and that they make words and sounds and so on. But I don't remember that. I don't remember Eureka. I remember reading, going to the library when I was almost six um, and going down to the one which still exists there, put there by Andrew Carnegie, who I never heard of on, in Brooklyn, um, and finding my way into these strange things called, called books because for a kid, particularly a reader, a book is like a house. You know, it's got a, the cover is the front door. You open that front door and you can be in Treasure Island or the Chateau d'If or um, the top of the Everest of any, all kinds of places, past and present. Um, so to me, it was an adventure. I also had the great good fortune of growing up before television. Uh, Television didn't come till I was almost 15. I mean, in a mass way. It was technically possible. 
So for entertainment, you read. You could read books for, for entertainment and not have to show up and salute to a teacher and explain what the theme was or something. I know when I get emails that say, what is the theme of your book? I know they want, they want me to write the term paper. Uh, but it's much more fun to just read, to get carried away, to embrace, to not stand there like uh, a prosecutor and make Tolstoy really learn how to do this better. You know, it's, it's more fun to surrender to a great book. Um, I think that's something that, you know, that, that when you're just reading for school, you sort of, you, the joy is sort of sucked out of it somehow, you know, and you, yeah, when you're yeah. discovering it on your own, that's where the, that's where the joy comes well, from. Well, what I've been doing in, over the last seven or eight years is reading some books that I thought I'd read when I was young, and now I've had a life in between. So the, all kinds of books are different from what I thought they were. Don Quixote is different. I thought Sancho Panza was funny. Now I think he's a jerk. And I, you know, and I, I love Quixote. If, if he says it's a, it's a dragon, it's a dragon. I'm, I'm a Quixote guy now. Or Dante's Inferno or Bleak House, um, which I thought was just a straight out detective story. And you read it now, it's like, holy mackerel, look at this thing. What else is left to say about anything? So I think that's a good thing as people get older, mm -hmm. when they're trying to make sense out of their lives, to see the books that they were affected by when young and then see if they hold up. Right. Italo Calvino has an a, a essay uh, about the classics saying, one thing about the classics is that each time you read it, it feels like a new book. Right. And I think that's true. Uh, of all the books that I've been looking at that I, I read really for, to get through August in 1949 or something. And uh, the richness never ends right. that way. Sorry. Why books are so great. I'm supposed to turn this over to the audience now. I'll stop monopolizing you. <laughs> so if anyone has any questions. We do have a microphone, so just raise your hand and I will come to you. Other than not having typewriters in the newsroom, have tabloids changed much um, um, over a half, the last half a century? Or is the content, or, and what makes a great um, edition of a tabloid? Well, well, I think they have changed. I mean, they've become uh, more Fleet Street than ever before. Uh, for example, when I started at the New York Post, 1960, summer 1960, and the years that followed, which were my apprentice years, Murray Kenton was in the city room. That was like having Henry James in the city room, you know. Uh, and, what, and the group of writers that were assembled at the Post uh, included Nora Ephron a little later and, uh, and uh, other people who were not people concerned with writing three dead, two hurt, and car crash. They wanted to find out something else. And they were urged by the editors to go in and find out something that makes this either, either more understandable or more human, which was the way to do it. I think that notion, I'm, I'm not, of, 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 I hate to use the, the word upscale, but um, the notion of a tabloid that did not write down to its audience 
I think that is the, the key to a success. And it, yet it, people shrink away from it. They say, our readers won't get this if it's too complicated, if it, God forbid, uses irony in a, in a piece or does not go for the big guffaw in the TNA show on page three. So I think they have changed and I, I hope the kind of journalism that I was allowed to find my way in, uh, including the sports writers, Jimmy Cannon, Red Smith, Larry Merchant, all those guys who were just top of the, the pack, uh, I hope some of that comes back when people are trying to figure out what the professional uh, internet is gonna look like, professional in journalism internet is gonna look like. I hope it's hip and smart and well-written uh, and and writ written a and it, become, it can be an attempt at literature. Ezra Pound is a crackpot on economics and social issues and all the others, but in his book, ABC of Reading, he has a sentence. He said, literature is news that stays news. And that sentence is really what it's about. If you've never read the Odyssey and you read it for the first time, it's new. If you've never read Madame Bovary, it's new. It's gonna be on the shelves for as long as there are human beings in this planet. And you're a fool not to try to see what it's about. And I think the same applies for journalism. If you, you're writing this thing, not only for tomorrow's paper, but if people come around in 20 years to try to figure out what was it like to live in 1951, they can use the newspaper to get a better sense of it. That's a windy answer, forgive me. I'd like to ask you two things regarding publishing. That your thoughts on speed and intimacy. Speed and what? Intimacy in the right. newsroom. You've right. written about locking up an edition and then going out to drink with some of your co-workers in the past. Right. Now today, you can publish something and once it passes the webmaster, it's up immediately. There's not a lot of time to rewrite and rethink things and, and see how the new edition comes out at the newsstand, so to speak. And people can be almost anywhere and contribute content. So they may not be in the newsroom and go out with comrades after the edition is put to bed. What do you think about the speed and perhaps the loss of intimacy in the new way that, that news is being published? Well, I think there's dangers to speed. Uh, in, in one sense, what w where we are right now is that the print media, the Times and the, the others, are on one level a verifying medium. They're the people that have time to, write, to make three, four, five, six telephone calls instead of one or two. So well, they can never be first again on breaking news but they have to be the one that's accurate. But I think as, as the internet, professionalize, internet journalism professionalizes, more editors are gonna be demanding from the contributors to, yes, you can have a bulletin that explains what happened in Joplin, uh, Missouri today, uh, but it's gonna take a little bit. Uh, more to get a full rounded piece and you, you stay the reporter stays there and he can send in an hour later a new 
revised draft, and an hour after that, another draft. And if he's really good, or she's very good, um, go back to it in the following day. Uh, for example, I was thinking about the floods on the Mississippi the other day. And they were constant references to the 1927 flood on the Mississippi. The best version of it is a short story by William Faulkner called Old Man. It's a long short story, about 40, 50 pages. But every young reporter down there uh, would be enriched by reading that story right now to be able to see what did Faulkner see that was important. How did he make the flow of the water seem real? How did he do that with language and make it something that uh, 20 years from now or 50 years from now someone will be able to read, not a week and a half later, but uh, in the future. So I, I do think the attempt at excellence, the attempt at saying, if we don't have the first word, let's have the last word, I think that impulse is gonna drive a lot of the journalism that's shaping right now. The other part of your question about the, not so much, in, I wouldn't call it intimacy, but the contact among other newspaper people uh, where a sports writer could come to a political columnist and say, you know, you ought to do a column about X or whatever it is. Um, I think we're losing that now because if you're a photographer and they were the guys that, and, and, and the men and women who knew the city best because they would do five assignments in a day, uh, they're filing from the trunk of the car now. They don't come in and develop film anymore. The sports writers never come in anymore, so they're contributions to the general thinking about how the city should be covered are missing now. Uh, so I hope there's some way to fill that gap. There's, there's some attempts at it. Charlie, Poor, uh, Charlie uh, Senate uh, has a foreign news uh, operation called globalpost.com, the purpose of which is to replace all the shrinking and vanishing foreign bureaus of newspapers. They're just going belly up everywhere. And he's built a system of people. But he also, in Boston, has a city room. There's a place where if you're there and you want to write your piece in the office, just come on down and talk to the people, uh, the other people in the office, and bounce ideas off each other. Because I think a lot of it um, is a kind of uh, communal operation, a newspaper or a magazine. Uh, I always say that, that, that uh, journalism is a team sport. Writing a novel is golf. It's you and the ball. But it, the team sport really requires faces and contact and laughter and occasional stupidity, too, and forgiveness. <laughs> Hi, I have a two-part question for you. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Um, one of my favorite books of the last few years is called The Imperfectionist by Tom Rackman. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, but I wanted to see if you had read that book and what your thoughts were on that book. I, I had read it and, and liked it very much. I even sent the guy a fan letter. It's really a terrific novel. Well, excellent. There's a, uh, a great discussion at the end of that book between the author and Malcolm Gladwell about uh, whether readers are more empathetic to characters uh, in a fictional book than they would be to people in real life. And I, I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that, that view. That's like, is there a God? <laughs> uh, 
It depends on the novelist, obviously. If you have a great novelist, the, the great novelists always let you know that there's more to a human being than a cartoon, that there is an interior life, that there are, even among some of the worst sinners, um, there's a little uh, sliver of humanity in, the, in most of these people. Uh, in that sense, I think the novel probably is the only place where you can even suggest that. And now, I wouldn't do it myself for some people. I, I don't want to write a novel about Hitler and spend three years with Hitler in my brain. I don't want to do that. Life is too short. Uh, but I've known people, both as a journalist and just growing up, who were not saints, uh, but who had certain things about them that were not a cartoon, not part of a cartoon of a bad guy, that there were certain things about them that revealed some humanity. So uh, in that sense, I think uh, that's true now. People take enough time to stop and listen, not to talk at people, but to listen to what they're saying and how they say it. Uh, there's sometimes you can get closer to what the individuals who populate a city like this are really like, and rather than looking at some statistical break, breakdown of left-handed people or something and think you know about left-handed people. So uh, I don't know if I answered your question or if I heard it correctly, but I do love that The, the Imperfectionists. I, th I think it's a terrific book. You should read it, everybody. Uh, last question. Second row here. Having edited both uh, the Post and the Daily News, is there uh, anything interesting you could say about the ways that they were similar or different? Well, I think the reporters on both papers are, are similar. Um, I, I, I can't speak for it right now. I, I don't know some of the reporters on the Daily News, and I, I don't know all the reporters on the Post. But at the different times that I was at both papers, uh, the reporters are essentially the same. They're, they're, some of them are driven, some of them uh, are driven and disguise it. They all want to get a good story to write, and put it in the paper and have, hope that it has consequences. So I, I, think, I don't think they're uh, ideologues in any way. You, generally, whatever the, the politics of the owner, the publisher were, most of the staff was opposite that. You know, if the, if the publisher was a liberal, uh, most of the staff would be sort of cynical right. I don't mean fascist right, but, you know, the are you kidding me kind of right wing. And vice versa, if there was a right wing publisher, most of the staff would be liberals. But I don't know now, because I, I haven't been in touch with a lot of guys over the last three or four years. But I assume it's still more or less the same. I think the worst thing that can happen with a paper, um, 
and to a writer is ideology, because ideology is not thinking. It's a substitute for thinking. And if you take your notion out of the reporting, if one of the kinds of columns that Kempton and I and Breslin and others did is you were paid to have opinions, but the opinions were usually based on reporting, on going out there and going to the third floor left and coming back with what you saw there. And I think that kind of opinion is okay. But I also think that even though I was a columnist, that you can't have a newspaper full of columnists. Columnists are like uh, soloists in a band. They get up and they play eight bars and they sit down. Uh, they're not the band. The band are the hard news reporters, the, the editors, the photographers, even the headline writers and the graphic artists. They're the people that put this thing together. And they're the people we should not let vanish out of American life because they're very great craftsmen, most of them. Uh, and it's hard to train one to be as good as some of those guys are. So I hope there's some way that even the internet, when it, as it develops, will find room for a 50-year-old copy editor who might know the difference between, uh, who would not use friend as a verb and, <laughs> and would not put reference in a sentence as a verb. Um, there can be, we can do better than, than what we're getting now, but uh, it's gonna take a little while, I think, to really have it begin to glow to have a what what I hope is a golden age of journalism a new one thank you all thank you for coming thanks Pete this is great